want to do something with you this morning for a little bit before I really dive right into it. I want you to think about something. I'm going to invite you to just jot something down on the back of your bulletin here, and then we're going to share it. I want you to identify and describe in a couple of words what you feel make up the elements that would contribute to the perfect worship service. Okay? The perfect church service. I'm going to give you a couple of seconds here, a couple of minutes to briefly jot down a few ideas, and I'm going to give a few of you a chance to share those. The perfect church service or worship service. Who wants to share what they think would make the perfect church service up? Anybody? And I know we're in the context of a series in Malachi and all of you are like gun shy. You're not going to say a thing because you know what's coming, right? No, be honest. What do you feel will make the perfect worship service? Anybody? Changed lives. Changed lives, okay. Presence of the Spirit. Presence of the Spirit. Truth. Truth. Anybody else? Yeah, Alec. The love of Jesus is preached. Amen. Um, more corporate prayer and more personal testimonies. Okay. More prayer, more testimonies. A sense of unity. Sense of unity. People come and give what they have and are open to what God has for them. One or two more. Honesty. 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 I'm going to be honest with you this morning in <laughs> one second. You asked for it. <laughs> one more. Pauline? The joy of the Lord is Amen. The joy of the Lord is present. I want to quote, as we begin, a very well-known author whose words, in this case, are likely not very well-known. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He said, the perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. Interesting. You think that's valid? You think that's biblical? The fact is, what we feel would be a perfect worship service, a lot of times, and I'm so thankful that that wasn't the case here this morning with your responses, but for a lot of people, the perfect worship service usually revolves around just that, what people feel. But what about what God receives? After all, he is the object of worship, right? True? Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 4 for a moment before we get into Malachi. Revelation 4, verses 1 to 11. I'm not going to actually read all of them. I'll just skip a little bit. After these things, John writes, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So we get the idea. He's peering into heaven. 
he's catching a glimpse of what's going on there. And the first voice, which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Then it describes who was on the throne. And around the throne in verse 4 were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Skip down now to verse 8. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. Chapter 5, skip down to verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Worship in heaven, as it is pictured here, is neither stage-centered nor self-centered but it's throne-centered and God-centered, isn't it? And it seems that it was also all-consuming. In other words, it was wholehearted. Last time we looked at God's Word through the prophet Malachi, we were confronted with a serious charge. In worship, God desires wholehearted devotion, not half-hearted worship or performance. The words of Malachi tell us plainly and definitively that we can go through all the motions of worship and deny with our actions everything we have just done and said. It's your life God wants, not a few moments of reverent silence. Worship is complete when you have offered your life to God. Remember I said that last week? So what does it mean to offer your life to God? Remember, I did a little humorous caveat last week about how when you love something with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you do things that you would not ordinarily do. And remember, I talked to you about like when my kids were two years old and they woke up at three o'clock in the morning and they had made a mess of everything and I got up to clean it up and what made me do that? And somebody said, Denise made me do it, but <laughs> love made me do it. 
Last night, let me tell you, let me be honest with you. Let me tell you a little bit about last night. Preparing my head, my heart for the message. About 10.30, we have our granddaughter, Emily. She's four years old. She came home with us last night. We took her out to dinner, and then she fell asleep on the way, so we put her to bed. About 10.30, I was starting to get ready to go to bed. All of a sudden, I hear my granddaughter crying upstairs. So we go upstairs, and she's sitting in her bed. And lo and behold, she had vomited all over herself, all over the sheets. So my wife went upstairs, and then she vomited all over my wife. And so we took the clothes, we stripped the bed, Denise got Emily cleaned up. I put all this stuff in the bathtub, took the hose and washed it all down, got it all cleaned up, put it in the laundry. I was going to wash it, so it smelled bad. <laughs> it was, I'm being honest. So we get it all finished. We bring her downstairs, put her on the couch so she can lay down and sleep there. I'm just getting ready to get cleaned up and go to bed. Started the wash, and she did it again. This time all over the couch, all over Denise, all over her. Cleaned it all up, stripped it all down, rinsed it all out again, started the wash again. Now it's probably midnight, okay, before this is all done. I told Denise, I think I'm going to go to bed now. i got an early day tomorrow. I walk into the bathroom to brush my teeth, and there's an inch and a half of water all over the floor, and it's leaking out into the rug in the hallway, and it smells bad. <laughs> and I look, and lo and behold, our drainage system was blocked, and everything that I had just rinsed off down the sink was now coming up out of the shower stall and overflowing in my house. <laughs> Just being honest. <laughs> so I got about a thousand towels and a bucket, cleaned it all up as best I could. Praising Jesus. Praising Jesus the whole time. Amen. Got that right. For a split second there, I don't think I did, but. <sighs> and, and the whole time, I'm thinking about last week's sermon. And praising God through it all. About 1.30 now. So we had to stop everything up, shut off the water, and I, you know, obviously here it is. I haven't shaved for two days. It's 1.30 in the morning. I have to preach this morning. We can't take a shower when we get up. We can't do anything that has to do with draining water out of our house. But I'm praising God that right next door is a church that has working bathrooms. You should see me 5 o'clock this morning in the men's room over there with my head under the sink shampooing my hair. 1.30 in the morning, I go into my bedroom, getting ready to go to bed, and I decide, I think I'm going to kneel and pray. So I kneel down, 
and my bare feet just about hit where the wall is, next to where the bathroom is, and they touch the rug, and the rug is soaking wet because all that water leaked under the wall and was in our bedroom soaking the rug. Back up, mop it up, all that again. Praise God. What does it mean to offer your life up to God as a living sacrifice? Praise God. And through all of that, it's minor compared to what some people go through. But you could see the silver silver lining in that dark cloud. I could anyway. I got up this morning, I was in a pretty good mood. Had to laugh it off. True worship, Malachi says, begins by restoring a correct relationship with God. That could have been a disaster in my relationship with God if I had let it become that way. But he's my father. And I had to honor him through all of that. Because there's a reason for all of this. Malachi says, You need to restore that relationship, that correct relationship with God by honoring God as your father, by respecting him as your master. The people of Malachi's day here were not doing that. They had a broken relationship with God and they had broken it. They didn't revere him as their heavenly father. They didn't respect him as their heavenly Lord. In essence, they were despising God's name. And as I said last week, to despise God's name means to despise God. God's name in scripture means God, his character, who he is. Now, when true worship erodes in your life and in the church, it's because somewhere along the line, that father-son, father-daughter, servant-master relationship has gotten messed up. We're called to be living sacrifices. In Leviticus 20, verse 26, God spoke to the congregation of his chosen people through Moses and said, thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. And a thousand years later, God again speaks to the people through Malachi this time concerning their laxity in fulfilling that call. How ironic and how predictable. And as I ended last week's message, I gave that illustration that showed that the ones who are closest to sacred things sometimes are the ones who desert the most basic responsibility of all, honoring the sacred one himself. And we're all in danger of that. Intimacy with the holy can erode into indifference to the Almighty, if we're not careful. Familiarity in Malachi's day had bred contempt. And the question that we all need to ask, and that I'm asking this morning, is has the cycle repeated itself again in the church? Second thing we want to look at here is true worship is bridled until we recognize our corrupt responses to God. Years ago, William Temple defined worship this way. He said, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Of God. That's a mouthful on worship. 
And if you look at that closely, you'll find that that involves your whole heart, your whole soul, your mind, and your strength. That's what it means to love God that way. The whole person, your intellect, your emotion, and your will. In other words, true worship is all that we are correctly responding to all that He is. That make sense? That, I believe, is what Jesus told the woman at the well, what it means to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's not what happens when our relationship with God is off track. When the relationship is not correct, our response is usually, well, corrupt, to use a word. Like an infected file on your computer, it messes up the proper functioning of the whole deal. In this text, the Lord confronts the people with three responses that they had that indicated that their worship was totally messed up. They had a detestable attitude. They presented disgusting offerings and they harbored a disdainful spirit. Let's first look at the attitude that they had that was detestable. Look at verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1. Verse 6. But you say, the second part of the verse, but you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. God's accusation here against these people was very sharp. You're despising me, he says. And the grammar implies that it was a continual, constant thing. It was becoming a habit. The people's apathetic attitude was even sharper because they came back with, how are we doing this, God? And God's adamant reply, you're presenting me with second-rate offerings. They were not willing to accept the charge. Watch their arrogant assertion in verse 7. How are we doing that? How have we defiled you? They didn't see anything wrong with what they were doing. Fact is that by their actions, they were declaring that the Lord's table, the altar on which they were sacrificing unfit animals, was contemptible. In other words, by allowing unfit sacrifices to be offered, the leaders were implying there's no need to approach this table with respect. There's no need to regard worship as sacred or anything more than just another weekly duty. That's the attitude that they had. And it was detestable. God levels them a second time about their disgusting offerings. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Look at verse 12. 
but you are profaning it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. Any true worshiper in the Old Testament knew that the law distinctly described that prescribed that a sacrificial animal had to be without defect and without blemish to be offered. The law expressly forbade the offering of blind or lame or diseased animals. If you want to read about that, it's in Leviticus 22 and Deuteronomy 15. Do you know why that prescription was made? Any idea? Because Jesus, every single Old Testament sacrifice typified and pointed to the undefiled Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would one day die for the sins of the world. And the priests were allowing the people to bring less than their best to God. Another reason why was because God deserves and is worthy of our first and our best offerings, doesn't he? The people had to bring animal sacrifices to the sanctuary for their worship, an animal for a sin offering, another animal for a burn offering, a third animal for a peace offering. Three animals for the family group every single time they came into the sanctuary. That could get pretty expensive, don't you think? So they brought the animals that were diseased, the crippled ones, the blind ones, and the worthless ones that they couldn't sell or use. After all, they probably figured God's only going to burn them up anyway. In their minds, this was a very practical thing to do. Fulfill the ritual, get rid of the crummy livestock at the same time. But their second-rate offerings, God said, was disgusting were disgusting and deliberate. In other words, it was premeditated, not just an accident. And you know what God called it twice in this text? Look at verse 8. What does he say it is? Evil. Strong word. Is it not evil when you present the blind for sacrifice? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? evil, their attitude was detestable in that they thought there was nothing wrong with what they were doing. What was important was the fact that at least they were doing something. They were performing the ritual. What else did God want? I'll tell you what he wanted. And he wants the same thing from you and from me today. God wanted their hearts. He didn't care about animals. God wanted their whole heart. And his desire has not changed. God is not the least bit interested in any kind of play-acted performance from any one of us. He wants heartfelt worship. And to think that we can get away with giving less than our best is detestable in God's eyes. It's nothing less, he says here, than evil. Paul Harvey had a broadcast some years ago 
And you know how Paula Harvey is. The rest of the story. Share this insight about the Butterball Turkey Company. They set up a hotline to answer consumer questions about preparing holiday turkeys. One woman called to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in her freezer, get this now, 23 years. <laughs> yeah, always oh, oh, right. 23 years this turkey been in her freezer and called about cooking it. The operator told her it might be safe if the freezer had been kept below zero degrees the entire time, but the operator warned that the woman that even if it were safe, the flavor had probably deteriorated and she wouldn't recommend eating it, you think? You know what the caller said? That's what we thought. We'll just give it to the church. <laughs> Click. True story. Now let me ask you right out straight. When you come here to engage in service and worship to God, are you prepared to give God your very best? And by the way, your service of worship doesn't just occur here, in this building, but it certainly shouldn't be viewed as any less of a place to worship. What does it mean to you or for you to give God your best? Does it mean your time? Because time's pretty valuable these days. Is it your praise and thankful heart even in the midst of your trials? Would that be your best? I had a phone conversation with a buddy of mine that I went to Bible college with who pastors a church down in... Uh, uh, in Small Point Baptist Church down on the coast. He picked up a, a virus or bacteria when he was over in Africa recently, and uh, he's been down for the count with an incredible infection that antibiotics are not working on, and he's like at the second to the strongest antibiotic that they can give him. And he has been in his bed for over a month, unable to do anything. And for him to be out of the pulpit, as you can well imagine, a pastor of 20 years is just driving him crazy. But as I spoke with him on the phone and prayed with him, I was just blown away by his thankful attitude and his praise to God because during all of this time that he's been on his back in the bed, he says he now has greater insight and much more compassion those people in his congregation that have long-term illnesses. Even in the midst of his trial, he could say thanks. If someone in our church that is suffering deeply, deeply, and has been sick for a long time with all kinds of physical problems, and I got an email from that person this week. I just want to read a little excerpt from it. He said, I'm usually a very happy-go-lucky person who loves to help with anything or anyone. I would have never guessed that it would have such a toll on my life, but I would do it all again to save someone or to help someone. I'm so grateful 
for all that our great God has so lovingly given me in this life. And I am not giving up. Sacrifice of praise in the midst of trials. And there are many of you that probably do that. That's what it means to give your best to God in that situation. As a pastor, these are the questions that I have to ask myself every Sunday morning when I come in here. Have I studied the passage to the best of my ability? Or am I just winging it? Because there are a lot of people that do. Have I prayed over this service? Have I offered myself up to God for his use? Have I confessed my sins and come with a clean heart? How do you prepare yourself for worship? What kinds of questions do you ask yourself to prepare your heart? You may be thinking, well, I come to church, I give my tithe, I sing the songs, isn't that enough? Not when God's the object of worship. No way, no how. See, the question is, do we attempt to get away with the minimum weekly requirement and call it good? Well, Malachi says, try doing that on your job. God says, why don't you give that lame offering to your governor? See if he'd treat you kindly. Offer that kind of stuff to your boss. In the Old Testament, the Persian governor sometimes required food gifts as revenue from the people. And Malachi taunts them here. Give the governor a sick or contaminated animal for his meal. You think he'd be pleased? You think he'd show you favor? Literally, would he lift up your face or grant you a cordial reception? See, the irony here is unmistakable. If such selfish, hypocritical gifts would not be acceptable out in the world, in the business world, how much less by God, the God of the universe? And we can all make some relevant applications, can't we? And don't miss the irony or the relevance here. It's ironic, isn't it, how a $20 bill looks so big at church but so small at the mall? It's ironic how long an hour and a half is at church and so short when you're watching a video. Isn't it interesting how dangerous it seems to be to drive to church on a snowy Sunday? But how good the roads can be when we've been invited to a birthday party. It's funny, isn't it, how we say we don't know what to say when we pray and how we can go on for 20, 30, 40 minutes to an hour on the phone with a friend or literally spend an entire evening on Facebook. It's funny how tough it is to read a chapter in the Bible and yet how easy it is to read a couple of hundred pages in a best-selling romance novel. Funny, isn't it? Maybe not so funny. Because the quality of our offerings to God are an indication of what's in our heart, Jesus said. So, what are you presenting to God? What's your personal best? I can't define that for you. Only you can define that. But I can define it for me. And I have to admit that I'm not always giving him my best. Are you? Where's your heart? When the heart attitude's wrong, worship is without worth, God says. No matter how professionally performed it may seem to the naked eye God looks past the polish 
and sees the poison in our souls. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. Listen to these words. I hate, I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies, God says. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Isaiah chapter 1. Not comforting words, are they? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And by the way, he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to his people Israel and calling them people of Sodom and Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? says the Lord, I've had enough of burnt offerings of, of rams and fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread your hands out in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. See, this worship thing and giving your best to God, this is very serious business. Verse 10 in Malachi chapter 1 has to be one of the most bone-chilling statements we encounter in the scriptures. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. Not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. A closed church, however awful that may seem, would be better to God than a church that perpetuates worship that is worthless. Now, let me ask you, do you think God's desires is that the church's doors would be closed? You think that's his desire? Of course it isn't. His desire is that people's hearts should change. And I agree with the pastor who wrote, if our concept of God is so low that we think he's pleased with cheap, half-hearted worship, then we don't know the God of the Bible. In fact, this man says, a God who encourages us to do less than our best is not worthy of our worship. It's true, isn't it? Our God is worthy and he deserves our best. Again, Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Our worship will never be true until we learn to distinguish between a corrupt response to God and a correct one. Corrupt worship reveals itself through a detestable attitude, a defiled offering, and thirdly, through a disdainful spirit. Look at verse 12. 
but you're profaning it and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, 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 how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? I think we can all be a bit like them at times. And you know what our problem is when we are? Because we buy into this selfism of our culture. We often expose by our own casual and innocent comments like, did you enjoy the worship service today? No, you're not going to leave here and say that today because I mentioned it, but how many other Sundays have we all walked out the door and said, how did you enjoy worship today? It's the filling station mentality, right? We arrive ready to be spiritually filled up and refueled for the week. And if we leave with a warm feeling, then we say we have worshiped. But the criterion for measuring whether or not true worship was accomplished is not, nor should it be, centered around us, but around God. Sally Morgenthaler, who wrote the book Worship Evangelism, wrote this in her book. It's a little story about a friend of hers that works at a Christian daycare center. At one of the center's weekly chapel services, she was sitting in the chapel with her little charges, quietly waiting for the rest of the children and their teachers to join them. As she sat preparing her heart for worship, the little four-year-old next to her tugged on her sleeve and whispered, when's God coming in here? <laughs> then she said, sometimes we have a four-year-old's concept of God. We're just waiting for him to show up. But the first and most basic concept scripture gives us about God's manifest presence is that God is already there waiting for us, right? In other words, God's nearness is not something that we whip up, bring down, or otherwise manipulate. God's presence is always something we come into. Is that right? That is precisely the reason why, after his dream at Bethel, Jacob could exclaim, quote, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. It's also why the psalmist can say in Psalm 100, Come before him with joyful songs. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now, this is all well and good, she says, but the fact that God waits for us to come into his presence does not explain why 34% of churchgoers say they never, ever experience God's presence in a church service. And another 27% say they only rarely experience God's presence or they are not sure if they do ever. Even though we cannot conjure up God's manifest presence into being, God's self-revelation, she says, is not automatic. It isn't, is it? We come into his presence 
But we don't always sense his presence, do we? God may indeed be willing to reveal himself, but God is also waiting for us to do something. He's waiting for us to draw near. C.S. Lewis paraphrased this verse when he wrote, it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. James 4.8 is very clear. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So, here's a question for your small groups this week to chew on. Does it, God's presence, the experience of God's presence, does it depend upon God or does it depend upon you, the worshiper? You can talk about that. And let me know what you discover. The test of our worship experience should be, what did God receive? What did I put into it? Was he pleased? Did we serve him? Did we praise him? Did we draw near to him? Or was he repulsed because our wills, our emotions, our hearts, and our intellect were disengaged throughout the entire process? You know, we have to get out of this, what did I get out of it mentality. We should not have to be bribed into worship. N.T. Wright, in his book, For All God's Worth, writes this. He says, many movements in the modern church try to make the worship of God more accessible. Often all they succeed in doing is to trivialize it. When you're confronted by fire, the proper response is not rational analysis. It's true, isn't it? But falling on your face. And I did a little study this week. I looked up every time the word worship was used in the scripture. Well, I have a little program that helps me do that, so. Probably 90% of the time when it talks about worshiping God, People are bowed down on their face. Almost 90% of the time. And he worshiped God and he fell on his face. Isaiah was undone. The man that was born blind, when Jesus confronted him and said, you know, who's the son of, he said, who is the son of man that I might know him? Jesus said, I that speak to you am he. And the man fell down and worshiped. Every time, almost every time, When's the last time you fell on your face and worshipped God that way? Anywhere. Anywhere. And he write, continues, people are more likely to be confronted by the majesty and awesomeness of God when the music and drama used in worship was written and is performed with that in mind. What matters is that in worship, we should enter the presence of the living God. And the music, if it is appropriate, can be a vital element in that awesome event. But we meet with the high and the holy one, the God of fire, in order that we ourselves are transformed. Listen to this now. To enjoy worship for its own sake, or simply out of a cultural appreciation of the performance, would be like Moses coming upon the burning bush and him deciding to cook his lunch on it. Great statement, isn't it? As Paul Waitman Hoon warns in The Integrity of Worship, man's subjective preoccupation with himself, his conviction that he is the measure of all things, that his individual freedom is prior to everything else, 
including God. And that the ultimate source of truth lies in the dramas of his own psyche rather than in the exterior revelation. This has corrupted the church more than it realizes. Again, in verse 12, God presses his convicting finger into the chests of the religious worship, uh, religious leadership. And he says, but you, God says, you are profaning me. You are disdainfully sniffing at me. God was pretty blunt. He stripped away all the cover and he called the kettle black. Fact is, they were bored with God. They were bored with God. They were tired of the same old thing. They lost their fervency. Their passion had become anesthetized. They performed the ritual, turned up their noses and they couldn't wait to get out the door. And I just wanna say this before we wind this up. Every worship leader, every pastor, indeed, Every single worshiper is in danger of this. Because when we view our worship and service for Christ simply as a monotonous routine, we literally turn our noses up at God. And when you and I begin to feel that coming here is just a matter of routine, that worshiping God is nothing more than cranking out another bunch of songs, spitting out another prayer, suffering through another sermon, and putting on a false front for other people, then you and I, my friends, are in a bad, bad place with our walk with God. And he is not the least bit interested in or impressed with it. He says, shut the doors, save your rituals, stop the noise. If we think we're tired of the routine, just imagine how God thinks. And you can read how he thinks in Isaiah 43, verses 22 to 24, when you have time. Corruption in our worship quenches the Holy Spirit's presence and eventually the result is boredom. And to continue that practice without regard to God's displeasure is so, so dangerous. Because God doesn't grade on the curve when it comes to his reverence. I mean, think about it biblically. From the first unacceptable offering of Cain in Genesis 4 to the consuming of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, by fire to Uzzah's death in 2 Samuel 6 as he reached out and touched the ark, which he wasn't supposed to do, to Ananias and Sapphira, And their deception in Acts chapter 5, God shows us that he has an exalted view of worship and expects no less by his people. And to continue in false worship is to invite God's judgment. Look at verse 13. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Why do you think Paul issued such a sober warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? What does God desire? He He desires obedience before sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, Psalm 51, David talks about it in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 will be on the screen. This is what God says. He says, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. And this is what I think it means 
to worship in spirit and in truth. Wholehearted devotion. And it blossoms when we remember the clear revelation of God. Verse 11, from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi said, shut the doors. Oh, that someone would shut the doors. What do you think that meant to the Old Testament Jew? What do you think they were thinking? What would be the outcome? Shutting down the temple to keep false worship out. That was the only place that they could worship in the Old Testament. Where would they worship if they shut the doors? What would it mean? You know what it would mean to the Old Testament Jew? It means that God would be turning to the Gentiles, to the other nations. Imagine the Jews' reaction to that. Imagine ours. If God said to us, we're going to shut the doors of the church and I'm going to go out in the streets because they worship me better than you do. That would be a little bit unnerving, wouldn't it? He could say that. But that's exactly what happened here. God did turn to the Gentiles. He did shut the doors of the temple. And when the, that's when the gospel went to all the nations. When people celebrated the pure offering, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And you and I, as we sit here in this, in this building, are the recipients of that grace. But cycles keep repeating themselves in history, don't they? And the church could go down the same road that Israel did, if it's not careful. That's why John told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, I'm going to leave you with this, verse 23, and 24. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If we are to please God in our worship, what we engage in and experience must bear the marks of what Jesus identified here. It must be enthusiastically offered from a heart filled with the Holy Spirit. And it must be according to the truth of God's unchanging word. One without the other invalidates authentic worship. Zeal without truth is nothing but subjective emotionalism. Truth without spirit is dead orthodoxy. It's only when our hearts are in complete submission to the Holy Spirit's control that we become true worshipers of God. And that is exactly what the Father is seeking. Second Chronicles 16, 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Our destiny is to worship the Savior. Ultimately, in heaven. That's what we began with in Revelation 4 and 5. It follows then that what is going on in heaven is a snapshot of what the church ought to be doing here on earth. 
In fact, it is what Jesus told us that we should be praying for, that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as Alan Redpath put it, before we can pray, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, my kingdom go. Right? Worship is nothing less than bowing before the Father and declaring wholeheartedly as you wish. Your relationship with God is only as good as you want it to be. How good do you want it to be? How good do I want it to be? Seek him now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do seek you. We seek your face. We want to see you. And we know from Jesus' words that only the pure in heart will see God. So make us pure in our hearts. And may we be fully devoted to you. Whatever that means for each one of us individually. And I know one thing that it means. I know that it means that we accept and receive all that Jesus has to offer into our hearts. Inhabit our praises as we close this service, Lord. May we draw near to you and experience your drawing near to us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.